Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had been infirmed or in an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You know, long before Jesus' first coming, a promise echoed from the Garden of Eden across generation after generation, century after century, millennia after millennia even. And it's a promise that we read of in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of our great enemy of Satan. It's Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is where it's recorded. And the remainder of the book that you have on your lap or on an app in front of you, the remainder of the book will not so much focus on mankind's attempt to reach back and please God after rebellion had entered into creation and sin entered and splintered creation. It's not man reaching back. That's not the story that you read. Instead, it will follow and unfold the promise that God made there in the third chapter of the book to remedy what we've done wrong. He promised, I will do for you what you could never do for yourself, even you. He's promising if it cost him everything. In the garden, he says it this way, I will crush this, but in so doing, I will be wounded. The imagery is like stomping on a poisonous snake. If you chose rather than to use a shovel, but your own foot or heel to crush the serpent that you might find in your backyard, if you chose to do that, you'd make yourself vulnerable to it striking you with its venom. And what it's telling you is that God would become so very vulnerable. And in the moment that he would crush the serpent, the serpent would inflict and inject a lethal blow to the Messiah, the promised one, 
It's what we will see happen to Christ on the cross. You see, the Bible is really the story of God. It's the story of his creation and the story, the unfolding of his promise to remedy what we've done wrong. His promise to redeem and restore creation. That's the story of the book. It's God, his relationship with creation and his promise to creation to redeem and restore it. That promise then is reiterated later in Genesis to Abraham, and, and it's, it's opened up even greater when God promises it's through you that that promised deliverer will come. And then he promises Abraham, and I'm going to make many descendants come out of you. You'll have a massive family, and I'm going to give you a place, a land, all for yourself. And through your lineage will come a blessing to the whole world, because I will send my promised deliverer through you. This is the storyline that you then follow from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, to his 12 sons who end up going into Egypt because of a great famine. The storyline of the Bible continues where God has to make good on his promise. And in order for him to do that, he's got to rescue his people from their Egyptian oppressor, the Pharaoh. And for God to do that, he'll send Moses to work signs and wonders, and then he'll use Moses and Joshua to lead the people out of their captivity and into the promised land. That's the storyline that we follow. Now, why am I reminding you of these things? Because the imagery that you just heard from John chapter 5 is actually supposed to take your mind to those things. You see, Moses would leave his palace in Egypt And he'd spend a chunk of his life out in the desert tending to sheep. He would be known throughout history as a shepherd of Israel for the way that he would go back to lead his people like sheep who were led through the wilderness away from Egypt and towards the promised land. And in your mind, you should have had it just tick into thoughts when you read that near the sheep gates is this place called Bethesda. You see, Moses would emerge doing signs and wonders by the power of God to validate his identity as God's messenger and his claim that God was determined to deliver his people. And Jesus is therefore often referred to by theologians as a greater Moses. You see, Moses delivered his people as they passed through the waters. And here it's going to give us imagery of the stirring of the waters, the movement of the waters, taking your mind back to the receding of the waters before the children of Israel, and God making a way where there was no way. Here's a lame man who has no way forward until God would intervene and make a way. And he's believing that God, if need be, would stir the waters or part them. You see, Moses would not lead the people into the life that God promised them, though, because they lacked the faith to possess it. Remember, there are 12 spies that they sent out, and they said, there's no way we're doing this because there's too many people, and they're massive. We can't do this. And so Moses himself would also not possess it because Moses would lose his cool. He'd lose his temper and misrepresent God as he lashed out in anger. So the children of Israel were left to wander around in the desert until the last adult member of that original generation died. Then a second generation had a choice. If they would believe God and embrace faith and move forward into the land that God had promised them which that second generation did just that. And they would need to, once again, pass through the waters to enter into the rest that God would provide for them. It's interesting because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, which is Moses basically his farewell speech, in verse 14 it tells you that it was 38 years before the whole of the first generation, the adult men, who are referred to as the men of war, had passed away. 
It's interesting imagery that you should be picking up here because we don't know how old this man was or how he became paralyzed, whether he was born this way or suffered it as as an accident or illness or the byproduct of one of those things. All we know is that this has been this way for 38 years and he's waiting for someone to finally take him forward out of his crippling state and into a future that would be hopeful. You know, there's an old TV show that for me came to mind this week as I was chewing on what theologians and and commentators bring up about all of this imagery that's meant to take your mind back to the original story to show you that Jesus is a greater Moses, a greater Joshua. My story went, or my mind went back to an old TV show that would begin every episode with a very monotone voice simply saying, the story you're about to see is a fib, but it's short. The names are made up, but the problems, they're real. You see, as you study through the New Testament, you begin to see this amazing pattern of Old Testament figures and stories depicting and re-emerging now in the life of Jesus. And if this is a TV show, we would assume that the stories are based on reality, but that they had their details kind of tweaked a bit to match the form of the shadow of the prior Old Testament story that it seems to depict. However, this is not the case with the New Testament records of the life of Jesus. This is not merely a story authored by clever men or women who are smudging the details. No, that's not it at all. This is the eternal story of an eternal omnipotent God making good on his promise to deliver us, rescuing us, all of the world, from its oppressor. And God in his sovereignty reveals his power and even his creativity again and again and again as the story unfolds after generation after generation after generation with these Old Testament shadows finding their substance and fulfillment in Jesus himself. Please be clear on this. John is not fudging or massaging the details to make this take your mind back to Moses and the deliverance he brought. John is instead choosing to highlight some details to be sure that you don't miss this amazing revelation that a greater than Moses is here. That a greater than Joshua is finally present. And he's here to lead his people out of bondage and into freedom. You see, you'll find in John's gospel that he's constantly looking back to the origins of scripture in order to prove to you that you are finding the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, that you are finding the substance of the shadow that was cast by these Old Testament pieces of typology. It's stories from the Old Testament finally finding their ultimate fulfillment and purpose here in Jesus. And this story is no exception. It's meant to take your mind back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their final arrival in the promised land. Augustine, the early church father, wrote suggesting that even the five covered patios that are mentioned here, that there's typology there, that there's an image there that you're meant to pick up on, that it, it, it creates imagery for you of the five books of the law, the books of Moses. And that the bodies of water, which Augustine reminds us in John's other writings, the apocryphal writing called the book of Revelation, a body of water was a picture of the mass of humanity. And he was saying, this is what Augustine says, that humanity was shut in by, held captive by those bodies of water or those five porches, that they were held captive by the law that was given through Moses and that they were waiting for as a crippled man beside the pool was someone to come and rescue them. 
You see, his observation about this true story of God healing a man is that it depicted all of us who are condemned and held captive by the law with only one hope for deliverance. While we're still trying to convince ourselves that all we need is a little help. Remember that we're looking at a new series together as a church, looking at the seven signs of John. You might remember that John, rather than using the word miracle when telling these stories about the miraculous things that Jesus did, he instead uses the word sign because a sign points to something outside of itself. That's the purpose and function of a sign. You see, these stories aren't just recorded to show you what Jesus did. They're to point you beyond themselves to Jesus's true identity. That's what John says at the end of his book. You remember in John's gospel, chapter 19, or I'm sorry, chapter 20, he finishes by saying that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. You see, this is why we're referring to our study through the seven signs as John by the title of that you may believe because these signs are not recorded merely to impress you. They're they're meant to convince you, to convince you that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, heaven's promised king and rescuer, and to convince you that he's trustworthy today. So if the sign is existing to point beyond itself, what does this sign point our attention towards? Well, I already told you the first thing. The first thing it points us towards is that Jesus leads a greater exodus. That Jesus came to lead a greater exodus. I'll tell you the other two, but then we'll go back to that first one. The other two are this, that Jesus offers also a greater solution. And that Jesus, a third thing, offers a greater Sabbath rest. But we'll begin where we've already begun. That Jesus leads a greater exodus. Because the story is meant to take your mind back to Moses and even to Joshua, who is Jesus' namesake. Remember, Jesus' name, Yeshua, he's really named in tribute to Joshua, the one that would lead the people into God's promised land. You see, Joshua comes into frame because it was only after 38 years of suffering before the people came into the experience of the life that God had promised them. Just like this man who waited 38 years before passing through the waters to be healed and made well. You see, Joshua would lead his people through the Jordan River. As their feet touched the water, its water receded from before them so that they could access God's provision for them. You could say that there was a stirring of the water that took place. And then Joshua would lead the people forward into the land that God had promised them. Something that the author of Hebrews said depicted them entering into the great rest that God had prepared for them. Which is interesting because in the story of Bethesda, the pool, the healing here, it ends with a fiery debate about the Sabbath and the rest that God has made available to us. You see, the story is to tell you that Jesus leads a greater exodus than Moses did. You see, what Moses and Joshua prefigured and foreshadowed, Jesus accomplishes to an even greater degree. He rescues us from our slave driver, from sin and Satan, a greater Pharaoh. Christ is our Passover lamb who covers us and protects us from the judgment of God. Christ becomes the rock, we're told in 2 Corinthians that when they leave and are going through the wilderness and dying of thirst, that, that he provides water and life when there's no other source that, that's found, that he alone gives us life. Next week we'll discuss that he alone is the bread from heaven that's life-giving. It's Christ our Joshua who then leads us into the promised land. He leads us into true rest. 
You see, the story is meant to tell you that Jesus leads a greater exodus. But the second thing is that Jesus also offers a greater solution. Jesus offers a greater solution for mankind who is crippled by sin. So take your minds back to the story at hand in John chapter 5. Because this is where we find that Jesus offers a greater solution for mankind who's crippled by sin. You see, for a chunk of history, the, the pools of Bethesda were a place that critics of the Bible used to point to and say that this is a proof text for why you should not trust your Bible. With people claiming throughout much of the 18th and 19th century that John must not have been a firsthand eyewitness of the life of Jesus and claiming that John must not have ever even visited Jerusalem in the first century. Because there's no other documentation that mentioned this pool from antiquity and there was no archaeologist who was able to discover any proof that it ever existed at all. Once the pool of Bethesda, though, was found, presumably, which it was found, it's an amazing place. If you go with us to Israel, you get to see it. But it's presume, once it was found, presumably after being destroyed, sometime around 70 AD when the Romans came through and laid waste of the city... The conclusion that people now draw is the opposite of what it was before. They now draw the conclusion that John must have been in Jerusalem in the first century before the Romans arrived and destroyed this pool in 70 AD because he otherwise wouldn't have known about it. John, therefore, would have been a firsthand eyewitness account of these things and someone who was very familiar to the city. Author F.F. Bruce, he's a New Testament scholar, that I've been reading as we're going through this series in John, reading both his commentary and then he has another book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? He writes about this very thing, beginning by writing about the excavation work that began in 1888, that looked and found adjacent to this old crusader church that's beautiful and still there uh, that you can walk into today that's made of limestone. This, this church is there, St. Anne's Cathedral, they call it. Just adjacent to it, as they started to do an archaeological dig, they found the footings of an ancient church that was much older than the crusader era. And they realized that the church was built to mark a place that was significant. So as they dug and excavated beneath it, what they found underneath were these pools. These two pools, one on the north, one on the south, the two pools at Bethesda. And what they found was that the northern pool was filled through some sort of an aqueduct system that was taking seasonal rainwater and bringing it in, and that there was a dividing wall between the two pools that had these recesses that could be lifted so the water in the northern pool would fill to a higher level. When they needed to fill the southern pool, lift the water there, they could make a stirring of the water by lifting, lifting these recesses and allowing water to freely flow down into the southern pool. Here's what's interesting. It's believed to be an oversized mikvah, which is these these ceremonial pools that were used for cleansing when you'd enter into the city. And because the water could move, water could go into it. This is where as people would come into the city to celebrate the feast, which is what you're seeing happen here. People would go to that pool first to wash so that they were ceremonially clean to then enter into the presence of God. See, this is one of the barriers for this paralyzed man is that he was unfit for the very presence of God, because of his paralysis. He wasn't allowed to enter into the temple. The whole thing is very interesting that for critics of the Bible to have brought this uh, accusation that this couldn't have even existed. One of the other reasons they said it is because a hexagon structure, remember it says it's a five, there's five covered patios around the pools. 
A hexagon structure is something that's not, it doesn't fit with contemporary buildings of the first century, but what they found when they did this excavation is that there's actually four sides to these two pools, and then running down the middle on that wall that separated them was another series of covered patios, making a fifth line, a fifth portico. It did fit with what John had written and specifically said. Now, my point is this story actually happened, and my real point is it really matters because the Christian message is so unique and different because Jesus offers a greater solution for mankind who is crippled by sin. You see, Bethesda is a pair of Hebrew words that squish together that scholars say it's, it means literally the house of mercy. But if you ask me, it seems more fitting to call the place a sick and twisted joke than a place of mercy. You probably notice little asterisks in the middle of verse 3 in your Bible, noting that some ancient manuscripts don't include the second half of verse 3 and then verse 4. Some scholars also point out that when listed in manuscripts, it seems to be written in as a footnote giving context and a cultural explanation for why people gathered around the pool, making it clear that the Bible itself is not necessarily authoritatively qualifying or verifying this folklore and belief. It's instead merely recording the urban legend that motivated these people to gather around the pool. Now, we don't know if, in fact, an angel did come or if it was simply a gentle breeze, or seismic earth movement, or an underground water source, or even the pool being refilled as someone would lift a levee. I do know this, though. If I was sick and desperate, I'd assume it would probably have only taken one report, one rumor that I would have needed to hear of someone like me being healed for me to pick up my bed and walk from wherever my place in the city of obscurity, of the, the corner that I sat on begging for alms, for me to pick up and leave from there and go sit by a pool and do it there instead. Could an angel do this, stir the waters and heal people? Absolutely. Sure, why not? Was an angel actually doing this? Your guess is as good as mine. But the paralysis. The paralyzed man here, he indicates to Jesus that he believes that it's true. He even indicates that he's been present to see what he believed were healings that took place. And I'll say it again. This is hardly a house of mercy. It feels more like a sick and twisted joke. Because whether it's folklore or not, well, because really, quite possibly worse than if it's a lie, and these poor people are just wasting their time and their life waiting by a pool, if it's true, maybe it's even more egregious and more terrible and heartbreaking because the ones most needing a healing were the least likely to ever receive it. I mean, you're telling me you think a lame man and a blind woman are going to beat out a guy with eczema? Like, seriously, think about it. The people who needed a healing most had no way of getting it. It's the guy who came with the rash who'd be the first in the water because he's not walking with a limp or blind and unable to see even which direction it goes. The, the pool is even in or, or, or unable to see that the water's even being stirred and having to wait till they hear commotion and then try to roll their way towards a pool. And you can imagine then the chaos that would ensue when a bunch of blind, lame, and paralyzed people roll into the deep end of a pool desperate to be healed. They very quickly become desperate for a lifeguard. This is a mess of a situation. The, the house of mercy, it feels like a mockery. You've got all these desperate people so full of despair, they're putting their life on the line, just rolling into the water. For 38 years, though, the guy has dealt with his infirmity. And we don't know the length of time he sat beside the pool, but it seems to be long enough that there's just despair and hopelessness that's left. 
And we know that he's not the only one there, the sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. This is tragic. All of these weary people sitting around the pool with their gaze fixed on the water, not wanting to so much as blink because it's their one shot, they think. This is my one shot at a life again. I picture Jesus stooping down to talk to this guy and looking him in the eye, asking him, asking him this great question, do you want to be made well? And I picture the guy trying to look beyond Jesus over his shoulder because he can't miss the shot if it comes in this moment and someone's in his way. I mean, how many quote-unquote false alarms had there been when you'd think that you saw movement in the water and you'd hurry and get in only to find you're still sick or deaf or crippled? This would be exhausting in every way. And it's hard because Jesus seems to stick with his pattern of seemingly awkward and even insensitive comments that we've already seen play out in John's gospel. Remember with his mom in the first sign, she comes to him and says, hey, they're all out of wine. Can't you help? And remember what Jesus says. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Remember the second time that we looked at one of these signs. It's that man coming, the nobleman saying, would you please come with me? My son is on death's door. If you come with me, you can heal him. Do you remember, though, that Jesus responded and said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And then when the man begged again, Jesus told him, I won't go with you. You're going to have to go home by faith, believing that I've healed him. And now Jesus walks up to a paralyzed guy in a cultural context where everybody knows why he's there. It's because he longs to be well and whole again, surrounded by these other sick and crippled and desperate people. And Jesus walks up and asks him, do you want to be made well? It's a bit cringy. It doesn't feel like the best bedside manner on Jesus' part in this moment. Do you know in the Gospels, it records over 170 questions that Jesus asked. And you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that, that he asked those questions because there were things he just didn't know and was super inquisitive. Especially with a question like this that's posed to a paralyzed guy next to a pool that people believe has magical powers to heal. I think that in most cases, Jesus asked questions as a teaching tool or as a way to draw faith out of an individual. He used him as a teaching tool. It's him asking when people came with complaints about what he did on the Sabbath in Luke's gospel, where he asked, if your child or even your livestock fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you help them get out? He's asking them, if you had the power to do good, would you not use that power to help and save another person? He was using it as a teaching tool to correct their errant thinking that was coming with accusation against him, saying that he was blowing it. And he's like, I don't think that I am, and you actually don't think I am either. It was a teaching tool, but he also would use these questions to draw faith out of individuals. It's him asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's him asking this man here, do you want to be made well? It's Mark 10 when blind Bartimaeus stumbles his direction that he simply says to him, what would you like for me to do for you today? It almost feels offensive. Like I try to put myself in this guy's spot. If, if I'm that, this guy at the poolside or Bartimaeus, who someone's bringing by the hand to Jesus, and I'm moving my hands around, feeling for Jesus' figure and form in front of me, finally grabbing onto him, and then Jesus says, well, what would you like for me to do? I'd almost feel mocked publicly. Like, are you kidding me? This is not a joking matter. I feel like I'd be filled probably with some anger. I'd, I'd smack back with my own form of sarcasm. What do you mean, Jesus? Look at me. Are you the blind one? Like, uh, clearly you know why I'm here. But in Bartimaeus' story, for him to publicly verbalize, I want you to heal me, 
I believe that you could heal me, was a step in faith. You see, even in this situation, Jesus is trying to draw faith out of this man when right now his only faith is in a process. If I could just get this done. I mean, think about this. Jesus says, do you want me to heal you? Do do you want to be made well? And the man doesn't even directly answer his question, does he? Or does he? Does he answer it? Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? And the man's response, verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred, but while I'm still coming, another steps down before me. The man's answer to Jesus' question of, do you want to be made well, is essentially, what I want and need is just a little help. That was his answer. Do you want to be made well? I want a little help. Do you understand how high the stakes are for this man? To be paralyzed meant he couldn't walk. To not be able to walk meant that he wasn't able to work. To not be able to work means he's vulnerable without a way to feed himself. Without a way to provide or feed himself, there's no way he could have a family depend on him. And because of his paralysis, he's barred from the temple. You see, it wasn't just that he was unfit for society that he found himself in with no socialized health care or no support for those who couldn't work in any formalized form. It was that the culture and society also told him he was unfit not just for culture or society, but even for the presence of God when they kept him from the temple. And all this man is asking for here is just a little help. I just need someone to help me get down into the waters fast enough. My friends, this sign points to the truth and reality that Jesus offers a greater solution for mankind who is crippled by sin. You see, Jesus going to a cross beckons a question to all of humanity. What do you want me to do for you? Every other religion answers back to him and says, I just need a little help. Every other, every single other religion leaves the burden on the human being to do something, to achieve something, or comply to something in order to earn, to prove themselves as worthy of heaven or nirvana or salvation or happiness or moksha or oneness with Brahma. Whatever salvation is called in these religions, however it's represented, you've got to do something in order to be worthy of it, to earn it. The burden lays on your shoulders. However, Christianity is the only religion where the offer and burden for accomplishing salvation rests solely on God, and man can do nothing to earn or deserve salvation. If Jesus merely came as an example, he'd crush you. But he didn't. He came as a savior to rescue you. Hear me say this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's offensive to the religious because you have to get to the point that you admit that you cannot earn God's favor by your own merits. And it's offensive to the irreligious, to the non-religious, because it tells them that they need God's favor. You see, Christianity alone is not a merit-based system. It's the only system where you will not benefit from just a little help. Because you don't need a little help. You need a savior. You see, Jesus going to a cross, it beckons a question to humanity. What do you want me to do for you? And every other religion answers back to God saying, just a little help. The sad reality, I think, is also, though, for many of us who are followers of Jesus, that we, too, have a tendency to answer heaven's question by saying the same thing. That, God, what I need is just a little help. 
We can find it happen subtly and very quickly that we make Christianity far less than it is. We make it into just another recycled form of every other religion that you can find, which leaves the burden and weight on you to prove yourself as worthy, to receive what God alone can give, a pardon and a place with him. You have to prove yourself worthy to get it. Whereas biblical Christianity, the gospel tells you that you will never be worthy to receive what God alone can give you, that pardon and place with him. You'll never be worthy, but someone else was. Jesus was worthy, and he's offering you his seat and place in the house of God forever. My friends, don't answer the question today with the comment, I just, God, need a little help so I can finally measure up to the standard, so that I can finally get into the water first. He's not offering us just a little help. He's offering to be our savior, but we have to have the humility to admit that we need one first. Oh, do you want to be made well, Jesus asked. To which he replied, I just need some help. And Jesus would have none of it. Instead, Jesus, in that instant, he'd demonstrate to this man and to all of humanity that he didn't merely come to help as if all we needed was a little help. No, Jesus makes it clear that we need a rescue from outside of ourselves. You see, when in this moment, Jesus, without a word, heals him in an instant and then instructs him to do something that would prove it, prove his miracle healing by telling him to get up and walk. I appreciate very much the words of pastor and author Nick Cady. He said, Jesus comes and invites you to repent, to turn away not only from the things that you've been pursuing instead of him, but also from the things that you've placed your hope in instead of him. He invites you to turn from those things and to turn to him and receive from him the healing that you cannot earn or manufacture for yourself, the healing of your soul. Oh, do you want to be healed? Maybe you're like this man and you'd say, yes, I want to be healed. I want to be rescued and saved. And I've been trying for so long to make myself worthy, but I don't have what it takes then repentance for you and for this man. It's not just turning from the things that you pursued instead of Jesus. It's turning from the things that you've been placing your hope in in place of Jesus. It's only then that he could turn to Jesus and receive the healing that he he could have never provided for himself. He could turn then to Jesus to be made whole in a way that he could have never generated or manufactured for himself. This is where the gospel is so very unique and and different and even offensive because the gospel is clear that you cannot save yourself. God didn't come to offer you help or assistance, nor did he come to start a, a personal reclamation project off in your life saying that you can do this. No, Jesus came as a savior to rescue you. And that's offensive because it's telling me I'm broken beyond repair. I'm so broken that Jesus needed to die. The beauty of the gospel is that I'm also so loved that he was willing to die. As I often remind you, and I remind myself so often, the gospel tells me that I'm far worse than I'd ever imagined, and yet simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. That's what the cross tells me. If if Jesus asked you today, what do you want me to do for you? Would you respond with saying, I just need a little help with my marriage. I just need a little help with my career. I just need a little help with my finances. I just need a little help with my relationship status. I just need a little help with... 
Or would you ask him today to do for you what you are willing to admit you can't do for yourself? You see, I think the story teaches us that Jesus leads a greater exodus, but it also teaches us and points to the fact that Jesus offers a greater solution for mankind who is crippled by sin. But let's wrap up and then we'll transition to a time approaching the Lord's table and partaking of the elements of communion by talking briefly about that third thing. And that's that Jesus offers a greater Sabbath rest. Here's where we land. You see, for Jesus to tell him to pick up his bed and walk, he's telling a man that he would completely heal him, not just partially heal him. This is not a sick man starting to get better in that moment or starting to regain some feeling in his legs. This is a lame man who's healed in an instant. By taking up his bed with him, Ephraim the Syrian, a fourth century church leader, he said it this way. He said, even if he, the healed man, were silent, his bed would cry out. He carried his bed as a sign to all who saw him that he was completely healed. Jesus also had him carry it as a sign to the religious leaders who took exception to it. I hope you know this in John's gospel when it keeps talking about the Jews. It's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. Not all of the Jews were were determined to kill Jesus at the end of the story. Some of his own followers are Jews. No, it's the Jewish religious leaders. This was a sign to them who took exception with it, which Jesus knew they would. This was a setup by Jesus, and it provided Jesus with an opportunity to reveal his identity to the religious leaders. You see, it seems as though Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath and then instructing the man, take up your bed and walk, were deliberate ways for Jesus to stir the pot with the religious leaders. Just like when Jesus intentionally used, remember the jars for purification, when he brought joy in the midst of shame at the wedding feast. Jesus here intentionally instructs him, take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath day. Because God had given the instruction to humanity to rest from work on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders, they had set out to define, well, then what classifies as work? And in doing so, they had quite the list of their traditions of what was forbidden to do on the Sabbath day. And guess what landed on their list that's found in the ancient Hebrew writings, the Mishnah? Carrying your bed on the Sabbath. No, no, no. It's breaking our traditions. It's wild when you think about it. It bothered them so much that when they saw a paralyzed man walking again, what do they ask him? What's their response? They ask him only why and who told you to take up your bed and walk. They completely bypassed the miracle and and failed to celebrate with this man that his life was whole again. Please notice in this moment, Jesus is restoring a life. He's reconstructing a future, but simultaneously he's deconstructing their their faulty view of the Sabbath. I mean, is the Sabbath, is it this? Is it God intending to control man's behavior? Or is the Sabbath God intending for man to pause and to remember and enjoy God's care and provision? Because those are two totally different things. To experience Sabbath rest is an intentional departure from your regular daily rhythm for the purpose of contemplation and rest, restoration. And Sabbath is still a very polarizing topic because on one end of the spectrum, you have Orthodox Jews who in ancient times built a fence around the law to protect uh, the, the laws that God had set for them. 
And in modern times, you can't start a car or cook a meal. Or if you're in Israel on, on Shabbat on the Sabbath, the buttons for the elevator don't even work. Because to push a button would be to cross the line. Instead, the elevator is very annoying and it just goes to every floor and the doors open and close. So you don't have to push a button and break it all. They've made the Sabbath into this weight and burden. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is the typical evangelical Christian who makes the mistake on the extreme other side of the spectrum of completely dismissing it. And I could use my own life as an unfortunate illustration of that, even recently, by telling you last week that I, I had foregone these rhythms, these healthy rhythms in my life, until my life became unhealthy enough that my body rebelled against me and said, shingles it is, maybe you'll slow down then. <laughs> You see, the American evangelical church often views it as a part of the law given after the fall because of the curse that sin brought, and that's why we needed to do it. However, the creative rhythm of work and rest was a part of the created fabric of nature and human existence from the beginning before the fall of man. Remember, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I mean, the first commandment God gives to humanity is be fruitful and multiply. And the first day of mankind's existence, he set aside for them to rest with him. It was a gift. It always has been. I mean, is the Sabbath really for today? It's one of the Ten Commandments and really the only one that for many of us we don't adhere to or think is very important. Well, maybe the command you'd say or the mandate, you could argue, is, is maybe not for today. But then I would just respond and say, I think the gift of Sabbath, though, still stands, as does the benefits of intentional restoration that Sabbath rest gives. You see, for me, I've come to realize that the Sabbath is about rest, about restoring my mind, my heart and body and recentering. It's about restoring and recentering my life around the reality of a good God who loves me and who has an eternal plan that's unfolding that I am a part of. Now, why do I have to do that in a weekly rhythm? Because the whole world is warring against that narrative. Because it's easy for me to forget and lose sight of those realities. You see, some of this then, if we Sabbath, if you do this, some of this should look the same for all of us, where we would slow our pace down once a week to spend time remembering Jesus and recentering our lives around him, while other aspects of how we'd Sabbath will look completely different based on your personality and the way that God has made and crafted you. The important thing for all of us, though, I would argue, is that we prioritize it and yield to the fact that God alone is the one who doesn't need it, and all of humanity does. And if I'm not God, then I'll yield and find my place amongst the rest of humanity. My quote-unquote Sabbath time, even for me this weekend, was actually my most active time uh, for the week. Because for me personally, the, the idea of restoration happening while there's a lack of activity is, is not what happens. So for me, it's, it's yes, me sitting and reading is a part of my Sabbath rhythm, but me, me being physically active and out in nature is a massive part of the process of how God restores my mind, heart, and body, and how he recenters my life around him. So for me, on my Sabbath, I, I surfed and I went for a very long run this weekend because those things are good for me and recenter me. What's it look like for you? How has God wired you to Sabbath, to rest and be restored, to recenter your life and your heart around him? You see, in our story, Jesus did not break the law. He did, however, step all over their traditions. 
You couldn't do this. You couldn't carry a bed mat. They took offensive with it. And Jesus is doing it because he's choosing to show them and you and I that he offers a greater Sabbath rest. You see, this story wasn't just about Jesus healing, about the healing that he could bring. It's also about the rest that Jesus can give. You see, this whole event took place on the Sabbath and allowed then for Jesus to give a new and greater understanding of the Sabbath and of the rest that he can give. In Hebrews 4, the the passage that I read from in our call to worship, it gives a picture and description of the true rest that Jesus, Yeshua, would offer us. And it does so by comparing it to the children of Israel being led into the promised land by Joshua. A promised land that still had opposition, a promised land that still had obstacles and battles in in front of them, but one that God had promised he would give them as they trusted him. Do you see that everything that you would need to do in order to be made right with God and to be at rest in life, no longer feeling the need to work with with the pressure to attain and strive, all of it was done by Jesus on your behalf. He secured true rest for us. Please hear me. This is a part of salvation. It's not just that I'm rescued from judgment, but that I'm brought into a place where I can breathe a sigh of relief and rest. You see, when Jesus lived a perfect life that you couldn't live and then died the substitutionary death that you couldn't give, taking your place, he did it to secure right standing with God for you and rest for your soul. Because you no longer have to prove yourself to God. You no longer have to have to lift the burden and weight of pressure of reaching up and finally being found worthy of his approval. And then because you find that approval in God who created the universe, you are now able to be released from, please hear me, you're released from the internal push and pressure to gain the approval of anyone and everyone. You're released from that. Do you understand that the rest you can experience is a rest from the work that's beneath your work? Yeah, all of us have to work, but there's a work beneath it where we're trying to use our work to prove ourselves. We're we're constantly under pressure to be validated, to have someone say that we're worthy, that we've earned it. There's a work beneath our work that we're released from. There's a true rest for our soul because we find our right standing with God being purchased and given as a gift by Jesus. Do you see, even more importantly, do you experience the great rest that's able to flow out of your identity that is now found in Jesus? You see, my friend, Sabbath is bigger than a Sunday. It's a life of rest that flows out of faith in the one that rested from his work. You see, the father, he rested on the seventh day of creation, not because he was weary, but because he paused to admire his work. He chose to do so with humanity by his side on their first day after their creation. The father, though, has always been working. He continues still to this day to work. In fact, according to their traditions and laws, God alone was the one who was allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is here claiming equality with God as he defends his actions by reminding them that God continues his work and saying that he has the authority to do so as he sees fit on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is claiming equality with God. They can't fault God for working when humanity needs to rest. 
Jesus' words are recorded for us in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, when he said, Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Who ordained and instituted the Sabbath? Well, God did. Jesus is claiming to hold the authority that God alone holds. He's poking fun at their silly, trivial rules that they made, as if you're the Lord of the Sabbath who makes the rules for this thing. Commentators agree for Jesus to say that he's Lord of the Sabbath is for him to say that he's the embodiment of our Sabbath rest, that we will find our true unending rest in him. Because Sabbath is bigger than a Sunday. It's a life of rest that flows out of faith in the one that rested from his work. Because just as the Father rested at the end of creation, it's Jesus who cries out on a cross that the work was finished. And the scriptures then show us that same Jesus who's finished his work, now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He's seated because he's resting, because his work is completed, and he's satisfied. He's accomplished all that was needed to be done for you and I to be reconciled with God and belong in his family again. My friends, what I'm telling you is that you can be released from your striving for an identity, from your laboring to belong, from your strain to prove yourself and your worth. There's rest from the work beneath your work because Christ has already proven your worth at the cross. You can take a deep breath and rest from your endless labor to be thin or young or the labor and striving to be wealthy or successful, to be renowned or applauded. You can rest from it. You can have real Sabbath rest. You see, the reason I need a weekly Sabbath is not just because I need a day of rest. It's because it places me back into a posture of rest for every other day of the week as I remember and experience Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, my true Sabbath rest. You see, this story is meant to take your mind, yes, to Moses in the great Exodus, saying that Jesus would lead a greater freedom. It's meant to take your mind to the fact that Jesus would offer far more than help, that he gives a greater opportunity for you and I to be healed and made whole. The story is also telling you, though, that with that comes an invitation to enter into a true rest, that you can rest from the work that's beneath your work because of your new identity in Christ. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.